At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Mark Zuckerberg. The tech magnate's stance on filtering or not filtering what we read on Facebook. Some of the stuff that people share on the internet is real junk. It's completely made up and you don't want that stuff to be the stuff that's that's going the most viral. Zuckerberg on information curation, social media's obligations to the people that use it. I don't think that Facebook or, or internet platforms in general should be Um, arbiters of truth. And remote work for all? Sort of. How Facebook is prioritizing virtual opportunities according to experience. If you're a new grad at a college or um, haven't had a lot of experience working at a company, it's actually more important that you're at the office in person for training. Plus reflections on that big interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin, exclusive to this podcast. I think Mark has been wrestling for years with this issue of what is truth, Who's supposed to be in charge of truth? It's Thursday, May 28th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Almost 2 billion people log into Facebook every day. The scrolling, the posting, the friending. It's happening somewhere right now and contributing to the company's $650 billion plus market cap. Today on the podcast, you'll hear from the company's CEO and chairman, Mark Zuckerberg. Hey there, can you hear me? Hi, I can hear you fine. How are you? And this sounds okay, this microphone or whatever? It sounds I caught up with Andrew Ross Sorkin. So, Andrew, tell me about talking with Mark Zuckerberg. You know, so Facebook's really having a moment. I mean, I, I guess you could argue they've had lots of moments over the last several years, but this pandemic has been a moment that's almost accelerated their business in, in certain ways, or at least accelerated the way the business is going to look over the next several years in ways that I, I don't think anybody could have imagined even months ago, given the kind of traffic that's now on their site and, of course, WhatsApp and on Instagram and, and, and so many other parts of their business. But, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has been trying to think a lot about what the future of work looks like. And as we're all working from home still and as America's reopening and hopefully uh, many people will start to get to offices, he has made a huge bet that our life today, this remote work is actually going to persist, not just for months, but for years and perhaps the next decade, uh, with a bet that 50% of his workers are going to be working remotely um, over the next decade and what that looks like. And um, that's really where our conversation began. Mark, you know, you've decided effectively to move the work the workplace in a very new way, which is that you're saying that you imagine 50% of your people are going to be working from home or remotely over the next five to 10 years. And that's a huge decision. So let's just start with how did you make that decision? And what are you expecting it's going to look like? Well, I think it's going to be a, a very measured process for getting there. So I, I, I do predict that over the next five to 10 years, uh, we'll be able to get as many as as much as fifty percent of um, of the company working remotely. 
um, that's not a goal. Um, it's, it's not like I, I, I feel like it's critical that, that we get to half, but, but it's, um, it's a prediction about how much I, I, I think we will get based on, um, the talent pools that we'll be able to have access to recruiting outside of, um, just the big cities. Um, and what percent of our employees from studies and surveys that we've done have shown an interest in working remotely if given that option. And so let's just talk about the cultural piece of this, because you're going to be onboarding people. Um, you're going to have people remote all over the country. Do you think it's going to advantage or disadvantage people? Do you think it's going to attract certain types of people who want to be in the office? There's also not just wanting to be in the office, but there's proximity to power. So if you have a boss, uh, oftentimes you want to try to be near that boss. There's the, the old idea of FaceTime. Does that go away under this? Yeah, I think that there are, there are certainly some advantages of remote work, and then there are issues that we have to deal with. So I mean, maybe I'll just go through some of the advantages first, and then we can, we can get into the challenges at length as well. Um, you know, the biggest advantages, I think, are access to large pools of talent who don't live around the big cities and aren't willing to move there. Um, and there are a lot of people in the U.S. Um, and in Canada and ultimately around the world who I think we and other companies that go in this direction will be able to access. Um, we also see on the retention side, one of the top reasons when people leave the company that, that they tell us that they are leaving is because they want to move to a place, maybe to be with their family, um, but we don't have an office there. So we'll, we'll now be able to keep more of those folks in the loop, which will be in some ways even more valuable than recruiting new people because those people are already ramped up on our culture. This overall will, I think, help spread economic opportunity more broadly across the country. I think that there's a, a big challenge right now, which is that a lot of opportunities are only available in cities in these metropolitan areas, um, which means that people kind of need to choose between the lifestyle that they want um, and, and sometimes would need to move to a city and leave that um, in, in order to have right. good economic opportunities. But it's not clear why that should have to be the case. And I think something like remote work can, can help on that. Um, there's environmental positive aspects. Um, people are going to spend a lot less time commuting and more time just teleporting in, either over video chat or eventually things like virtual reality. And for us, I mean, our company, so much of what we do is just building products that help people um, feel connected and present together no matter where they are. Um, so whether that's the main kind of feed products that we offer uh, or things like video chat, uh, workplace for enterprises, our, our hardware with portal um, or the longer term bets around virtual and augmented reality that are really about helping you feel present. I, I just kind of feel like moving in a more remote direction um, and, and requiring our employees to rely on these tools more um, will help advance some of that future technology development right. as well. So that's that's a lot of the stuff on the good do you, side. Do you imagine senior people in those roles being remote? Um, yeah, I think we, we will certainly get there. Actually, one of the one of the big um, things that we basically decided is we're rolling this out in a measured way is we're going to have more experienced people be able to do this first because we, we concluded that um, if you're a new grad at a college or um, haven't had a lot of experience working at a company, it's actually more important that you're at the office in person for training um, in order to get ramped up on, on how a company works and how to work with colleagues in that environment before uh, putting you in, in the environment where you'd potentially be more um, you know, on your own working remotely. Um, right. there, there are a few things like that. In terms of the most senior folks, um, there's certainly demand on, on our management team. And I do think some of the uh, most senior people will um, shift to work remotely more of the time. 
but but of course in, in these really senior roles um they're, they're somewhat unique i mean for for me for example i i couldn't uh just choose to work from home all the time if i wanted i have to you know go and and meet with people whether they're in their partners or, or governments um or, or or different folks and um so i would anticipate that i'm going to spend more of my time working remotely than i did before uh, but but I, I don't think that it would be feasible for someone like me or in a role like me to just work remotely all the time. I, but, I don't think. But that's, what does it do to? Uh, but but what does it do to like your executive team, Mark? In terms of, I imagine on days that you're in the office, they're going to want to be in the office, and on days that you're not in the office, maybe they'll they'll take the day from home. Yeah, and and you know, to some degree, we already have done this. We we have this policy called no meeting Wednesdays, which quickly evolved into. Um, work from home Wednesday because a lot of people felt, hey, if I don't have to come in and I don't have meetings, um, then I'm going to be more efficient if I don't have to commute into the office that day and I could just get through, you know, whatever code I'm writing or or, or document I'm writing um, from home. So we already have that, and that's standardizing on people um, taking time at certain points that has actually been a pretty good tactic. Um, in general, I think one of the big challenges with uh, with remote work that we're all going to have to work through is that is the feeling of kind of building social bonds, building culture um, and creativity right. together. Um, people are going to need to feel like they have the same opportunities to do their best work remotely in addition to being in the office. And they're going to need to feel like it's not going to disadvantage right. their career to work remotely. And those are things that we're going to have to be very intentional about how we engineer these processes, how meetings work, um, what opportunities people have in order to make sure that ambitious people who really care about their career know that it's, a, it's still a good decision um, to work remotely and they're still going to be able to get good stuff done. So I think that there are a lot of open questions on exactly how to do this, but this is part of the reason why we're taking a measured approach and rolling this out over um, o- over the coming years, um, starting with people who are experienced, who are, who are high performing at the company, um, in order to set that tone that that good kind of key leaders and, and folks that a lot of people want to be like are, are going to be moving to be remote. I think that that'll right. set the tone and then we'll kind of work from there in order to figure out how to open this up to, to more right. people. Mark, you were early on COVID and on um, moving people out of offices. You're also early on making the decision not to do large gatherings all the way through June of 2021. And you made that decision last month. Tell us how you made that decision. And I'm also curious now is the United States is reopening, America is reopening, so to speak, whether you would think about changing that decision. Yeah. So outside of Facebook, um, I, I spend a meaningful amount of time on our family philanthropy, the Chen Zuckerberg Initiative, where a big part of what we do is health work fighting diseases. And through that work, I've gotten a chance to um, get to know pretty well um, a, a number of leading experts in 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 these fields. I mean, we we helped establish this organization, the Biohub. That's a it's a really great research facility in the Bay Area. Um, which, by the way, you know, one of the co presidents is is one of the leading infectious disease researchers who identified who was on the team who identified um, the first SARS outbreak in the early two thousand. So he he was very helpful and instrumental in me understanding um, what might happen. Um, and by the way, has done great work turning the Biohub uh, into uh, a, a testing facility for the Bay Area. Um, you know, while testing was still limited, um, the Biohub was was enabling thousands of tests a day. Um, and also, we work closely with uh, a public health expert called Tom, named Tom Frieden, who was the director of the CDC for a while. So, those two really helped me understand early on when we were getting past the point that this was 
just as a disease that was in China and a number of Asian countries, and it, when it became inevitable that it was going to spread broadly and what that was going to look like, um, and enabled uh, me to uh, take some some of the policy decisions early on um, to anticipate that and make sure that our workforce could be safe um, and start building tools to serve our, our broader community, like right. the COVID um, information center that we put at the top of of everyone's newsfeed for for weeks and, and directed. Uh, more than 2 billion people to go see it so they can get authoritative information on um, on the disease and, and what's going on. Um, in terms of opening up at this point, you know, because we're, we're in a lucky position where, because a lot of what we do is software development, and you, you really can do that mostly from home, um, I, I think opening up is going to be somewhat of a contended resource. There are a lot of small businesses and other folks who really depend on being able to get out um, into public and, and, and out more openly in order for their businesses to survive. Um, but part of keeping them safe means um, folks who can stay at home, I think, being a little more conservatively about when they return. So we've made the decision right. that uh, that we're going to be on the slow end of, of having people come back to work. We've already started opening up some of the offices um, for certain roles that really can only be done there. But we'll, we'll open up a little more um, slowly over time than, than might otherwise be possible um, just in order to make sure that the folks who really need to be able to stay open um, for their livelihoods um, kind of have right of way on that, if that, if that makes sense. Right. I uh, want to switch topics uh, for just a couple of seconds. or want to try a couple other uh, questions on you for a second. Um, Twitter, um, as you know, just started fact-checking President Trump uh, in the past 24 hours just yesterday. What did you think of that? Well, you know, I mean, we're different companies, but I think we've been pretty clear on on what I think the right approach is, which is uh, that I don't think that Facebook or or internet platforms in general should be um, arbiters of truth. I think that's a kind of a dangerous line to get down to in terms of um, deciding what is what what is true and what isn't. Um, and I, I think political speech is is one of the most um, sensitive parts in in, in a democracy. Um, and people should be able to see what, what politicians say. And um, there's there's a ton of scrutiny already. Polita- political speech is the most scrutinized speech already by a lot of the media. Um, and I think that, that that will continue. Now, of course, you know, we have we have lines. Um, so, you know, just because we don't want to be determining what is true and false, um, you know, doesn't mean that um, that politicians or, or anyone else can just say whatever they want. And, and our policies are grounded in right. trying to give people as much a voice as possible while saying, if you're going to harm people in specific ways, right, if you're going to do something that's going to cause violence, or um, if you're saying that something is a cure to a disease that has been proven to be a cure, but it's right. not, um, and that could lead people to um, either not seek a, a, another treatment or do something that could be harmful, um, we'll take that down no matter who says that. You know, we, we had a case recently right. um, where the Brazilian president was saying that um, mm-hmm. that hydro, hydroxychloroquine was proven by scientists to be um, to be safe. Um, and, and we had to make the difficult decision of, of taking that down, even though we want to provide as much uh, voices as possible. Um, so there are lines and we right. will enforce them. Um, but uh, But I think in general, you want to give um, as wide of a, of a voice as possible. And I think you want to have a special deference to political speech. But as we get closer to the election and, and commentary around the election and questions even about whether we're going to have a constitutional crisis, I mean, that has already come up. Could you see yourself fact-checking 
certain things that are coming either from the White House or other politicians in the United States? So, I mean, let me be clear about what we do. Um, you know, for, for misinformation more broadly, um, we have a program to make sure that, you know, the things that are spreading virally on Facebook aren't complete made-up hoaxes. Um, you know, so if you look at, you know, whatever the top thousand or 10,000 links are that are being shared in a given day, um, you know, some of the stuff that people share on the internet is real junk and, um, and it's, it's completely made up and you don't want that stuff to be the stuff that's, that's going the most viral. Um, so we have a program where we work with independent fact checkers, um, on that, um, to make sure that things that are completely hoaxes are, are, are can, can be limited in their spread. Right. Um, but that's, you know, the point of that program isn't to like, try to parse words on is something slightly true or false. It's really to catch the worst of the worst stuff. Um, in terms of political speech, again, I think you want to give broad deference to, um, to the, to the political process and political speech. Um, but you know, there, there are lines. If, if, you know, we have, we have very clear policies on voter suppression, for example, that if you uh, mislead people on uh, when they can vote or how they can vote um, in a way that is, going to have an effect where, where people might think that they're voting and exercising their, um, their, their right um, to vote, but, but actually aren't because they, they show up on, right. on, on the wrong day or, or vote in a, or think that they're voting, but are doing something that isn't actually voting. Um, then we're not going to allow that. We'll take that down no matter who says that. Um, and and th- those are, those are very clear policies, but in general, you know, we've tried to distinguish ourselves as um, probably being one of the tech companies that is, the most protective of giving people a voice and free expression overall. Um, th- there, are, there are clear lines um, that, that map to specific harms and damage um, that, that can be done where we take down the content. But, but overall, um, including compared to some of the other companies, um, we try to be more on the side of giving people a voice and free expression. Right. What do you, what do you make of the idea that throughout this crisis, the, some of the largest companies, the largest tech companies actually have been the ben- biggest beneficiaries that, that ultimately more, this has accelerated the success of the big tech companies and has actually made it harder for the smaller players. I mean, I think that over the long term, those two things are inextricably linked. I mean, our business, for example, um, you know, we're really in the business of serving small businesses. Um, the vast majority of our advertisers are small businesses. And that makes up the biggest part of our revenue. Uh, more than 100 million small businesses around the world um, use our services, the, the vast majority of which for free, but some of them are, are, are paying, and that's uh, basically our business. So, yeah, we're certainly seeing a dynamic where a lot of small businesses are under a lot of pressure, especially as you know, there are a lot of people across the country are being told to stay home. Um, physical storefronts are having a hard time staying open. And even when they are open, a lot of people are wary about going out. So what we're seeing is that um, a lot of small businesses are having to shut down and, and may not survive this period. And that, I think, will ripple through and ultimately affect everyone. Um, and no one is going to be immune from that. Um, but one of the things that we are seeing is that a, a strategy that a lot of small businesses are using to, to survive and stay afloat is to shift more to the Internet, where you know, your online storefront um, will stay open even when your physical store can't be. Um, and to that end, we, we've tried doing a number of things. We, we had this big launch a couple of weeks ago of uh, a new product called Facebook Shops. And what it basically is, is it gives small businesses 
the ability to um, quickly set up a shop that you can attach to your Facebook and your Instagram profile. And you do it once. Um, and now people who, who interact with your, your business on social media can buy things directly from you and discover your products and complete the transactions. And um, I think something like that is going to hopefully help more small businesses stay afloat during this period. It's obviously not going to mitigate all the, the harm and it's not going to work for everyone, but I, I hope it can have some impact. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think we, we are all in this together. I think that there's no future where somehow all the small businesses suffer, but, um, but then you know, people still have enough um, disposable income to go spend money on things and then large businesses are fine. I just think that that's not going to be how this plays out. I know we got to run. Have you seen anything on the platform already as, as America reopens that's indicative of, of whether more people are either spending time advertising or people are buying things uh, through small businesses? I, I need to think about that a bit more. I mean, I, certainly we're seeing increased activity, um, uh, including of people interacting with small businesses. We're seeing um, small businesses start to use Facebook shops and other things more. Um, but I think it's not, it's not just one, one clear story where every sector is doing the same. I think what we're generally seeing is some areas around e-commerce, shipping, uh, shopping online, things like that um, are, are recovering and growing faster. Things like entertainment, um, gaming, I think that, that people do while they're at home um, are recovering faster. But then certain things like travel, I just think are going to have an issue for a very long time to come. Okay, uh, Mark, I know we had to go. Uh, before I go, coolest non-Facebook app or program that you've started using during quarantine? Anything that you found to be really clever that you're using? Well, you know, I have to say, uh, I, w- I was doing this a bit before, but I've spent a lot more time um, playing with games and virtual reality with friends during this period. You know, I, I, I've always been a fan of, of virtual reality, and that's, of course, why we started uh, why we bought Oculus and have been focused on building that. But now during this period where I can't physically be with, um, you know, a lot of my friends having the ability to do something where we're, it feels like we're physically in a space together. And I started playing this game echo arena. It's like, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's a combination of like Frisbee in, in three dimensions in zero gravity. It's kind of like, I don't know if you remember the book Ender's game where they have this, this game, um, that, that, um, and during the other students play during the simulation, it's kind of like that in virtual reality. And I like get teams of my, my friends and family together and we're, we're playing in, in VR. Um, it's, it's incredibly fun. And, um, and, and I think it, it, it will be a glimpse of the future um, where I think more, there will be more experiences like this that I think a lot of people are going to enjoy. Okay. I will see you on Oculus, Mark. Thank you. More Squawk Pod when we come back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm Katie Kramer. Mark Zuckerberg's CNBC interview aired on Squawk Box Thursday morning. The Facebook chief has historically been outspoken in his defense of the platform's responsibility to censor 
or not the information available to its users. And as you heard, Zuckerberg's comments to Andrew Ross Sorkin held true to his stance, even as fellow social media giant Twitter added supplemental fact checks to two of President Trump's recent tweets on voting by mail. And the president, on his end, announced preparations for an executive order on social media bias. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey defended the Trump Twitter fact checks and, in doing so, referenced one of Zuckerberg's trending comments in the last 24 hours. Dorsey tweeted, quote, This does not make us an arbiter of truth. I asked Andrew Ross Sorkin about the social media swirl, and it's complicated. Facebook should not be the arbiter of truth. And this was a phrase he used in the conversation with you. He used it in other interviews. It got some attention from his social media competitor, Jack Dorsey of Twitter. It's gotten a lot of attention um, in the last couple of hours and, and really the last day. What do you think about his stand about Facebook's role when it comes to what people say on the platform? I think Mark has been wrestling inside his own head, frankly, for years with this issue of what is truth, who's supposed to be in charge of truth, what's the difference between the truth out of a politician's mouth versus the quote-unquote truth out of somebody else's mouth, Um, whether to censor it, whether to flag it, how to flag it. And I think he is somebody, and I don't know if it's a libertarian view or if it's even political at all, but I think his, his view is that it is, it is so very difficult. Um, and he's not wrong. It is very, very difficult. But I think his view is that the moment and day he gets into that business, into the business of trying to be the arbiter of truth, he will not be able to win. That by default, he fails. Because in this age where, frankly, so many... So much of the public is searching for their own truth and that it makes it very, very difficult. Now, I'm a journalist. I care about the truth. Um, But one of the things that's happened, I think, over the last decade, frankly, is that the public, which used to only read a couple of newspapers or maybe watch a couple of different TV shows, has now become their own journalist. And... They're all in search, I hate to say it, of their own truth. And so you might go and watch us and maybe you'll watch something else and maybe you'll go to one website and go to another website, all trying to pick up different tidbits as you almost triangulate the truth. And I think that's really one of the most unique developments of the last decade when it comes to what social media and the internet has brought. It strikes me as a little, I guess, funny that both Facebook and Twitter took issue with, well, when there's information about voting, there's a lot of garbage online, but when there's information about voting, we're going to address that. Both of them took a similar stance on uh, where, the, where they will start to come out and actually correct people. Well, they did and they didn't. Because if you really look at what Twitter said and what Twitter has done thus far is they have committed, and you've now seen it, where they are fact-checking, in this case, President Trump, on the idea of mail-in ballots and Facebook. By the way, the same information that President Trump has on Twitter is also on Facebook. Facebook has not fact-checked that information, uh, at least not yet. 
Now, Mark Zuckerberg in our interview said when it comes to voter suppression, it's something that he's going to be looking very, very carefully at. Um, and so, of course, there are questions. And this is where the sort of there are different grades and degradations of, of you know, there, there, there's real questions about what is voter suppression? Um, you know, if, uh, if a politician starts raising questions about whether mail-in ballots are valid, there are some people on one side of that argument who are going to say that unto itself is voter suppression because it raises all sorts of constitutional issues because people are going to say that whatever, whatever mail-in ballots came in are, are not valid. Um, there are other people who will say there's a genuine and important debate to be had in this country about whether we should have mail-in ballots at all and whether that creates fraud. And so those are two sides of an argument. And the question is, where is the social media platform where that argument, if you want to even call it that, um, you know, if that is, exists on a platform, what's supposed to happen? And what's the platform supposed to say about it? Anything surprise you in your conversation with Mark Zuckerberg? You know, I'll tell you the most interesting part of the conversation for me was Mark made a decision back in April um, that employees were not going to be coming back to the company likely for the rest of this year. And more importantly, that he was not going to be doing large gatherings um, or real travel for the company through June of 21. And he made that decision last month. That was a very ambitious and aggressive thing to do at a time when we still don't know, you know, what this pandemic looks like, um, how quickly or not it may resolve itself. And to put a stake in the ground like that really struck me. And, and when I asked him why he did that, and more importantly, whether he would change his mind, meaning if, if you know, if the numbers get better, especially as the country is reopening, would he, can, would he reconsider that? Would, would travel come back quicker for employees of Facebook? Or would they do large gatherings potentially in 2020 or, or other times or, or other times sooner if, if the numbers look better? And he said, no, um, that what he really expects and the real reason that he was doing this is he said, look, there's lots of small businesses, frankly, that need to reopen, that need to get back to work and that, that need to have their employees in place. And so he expects Facebook to be one of the last to reopen. And he's not only fine with that, he thinks it's a good idea because the last thing that he wants to do is encourage his 50,000 employees to go out there and potentially create any kind of spread or anything else that could upend or make it more difficult for everybody else. And I, I think he meant that genuinely. Um, and I thought it was um, one of the most introspective and sort of reflective views on this pandemic and, and how CEOs are thinking about their own workforce and their own place in society that is really actually quite remarkable. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me. This was fantastic. Thank you. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening. On TV, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps other listeners find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.